as Pastor Ian mentioned, he's been working on a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll continue with that uh, series, also at his request. Um, our scripture reading, first of all, is from Matthew 5, the verses 1 through 12, and our text will be the verses 17 through 26. Matthew 5, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go on to verse 17 of the same chapter, our text. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders shall will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the Word of God. Be to God. 
Brothers and sisters, there are many hard things about this passage that we have read together this morning. And perhaps the most difficult is the words of verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know who the Pharisees were? The Pharisees were people who had paid exact attention to the law. And they read it carefully, looked at it, looked at it often, paid attention to it to the point that not only knew it, but they also applied, tried to live it out in their own lives. When we see, say today... Uh, don't be such a Pharisee. We mean, relax, man. Don't be so strict. And so when the Lord Jesus says that our righteousness should be even better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, doesn't that make you a little bit uncomfortable? I mean, these people are already strict about the law and keeping it, and Jesus says, your righteousness has to even be better than theirs. It sounds like salvation by works, doesn't it? It sounds like we have to do all these things just to gain entrance. And that doesn't seem to be in accord with what you've been hearing here in Mercy Church. Well, let's notice one little thing, for instance, uh, first of all. And, and that is that in verse 17, verse 17, our Lord Jesus does not say that you need to fulfill the law and the prophets. But he says, I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. He is the one who's going to fulfill them perfectly. He's the, he's the one who's going to fill them up, as it were, with his own obedience entirely throughout his life and even in his death. And heaven and earth will not pass away until all of this has been fulfilled. And so you see that the result of this, Jesus is the one who fulfills this righteousness. The result of this, you could say, is that those who believe in Jesus Christ will have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. To be sure, we also value, we will, like the Pharisees, we will value the law and we will value the, the prophets and do our best to keep them. Think of verse 19, which urges us to keep and teach the commands of the law. But at the same time, we do hear this command. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so what do we do with that? Well, the point seems to be here that the, the righteousness which a citizen of God's kingdom enjoys must far surpass the Pharisaic righteousness, not necessarily in, in, in degree, but rather in kind. Not in quantity, you might say, but rather in quality. It's not so that Christians must succeed in keeping, say, 240 commandments, whereas Pharisees only keep 230 commandments. No, Christian righteousness is greater and deeper and better than Pharisaic righteousness because it is a deeper righteousness. It is a righteousness of the heart. 
The righteousness that is demanded of the child of God demands that commitment of the heart and life, love and affection, passion, adoration, devotion, all good things before God. Loyalty. All these things that are already touched on in so many ways in the Beatitudes. The reason one cannot enter God's kingdom without a righteousness that is greater, that is deeper than that of the Pharisees, is because no one can enter the kingdom of God unless one is born of the Spirit of God. And in the hearts of those who are born of the Spirit of God, the Spirit will work into those hearts this deeper righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in case we don't understand that, well, the Lord Jesus gives us many examples of this. Every paragraph in the rest of this chapter works it out for us, helps us to see what this looks like, encourages us to walk in this way of this righteousness. All the rest of, uh, verse of chapter 5 is, you could say, a commentary on that difficult verse 20. And it's going to be interesting for you together as congregation to go through all the rest of those paragraphs to work that out, that, that deeper righteousness. We'll pay attention to some of that this, this morning. But uh, Pastor Ian has uh, spent some time, I believe, on the Beatitudes. Well, here our Lord Jesus is really continuing that same theme. He is speaking about those who possess the righteousness of the kingdom and how they live within that kingdom and before the face of that great divine king. So our theme is this this morning, going the right way even when things are wrong. We'll talk first of all about when others wrong you and secondly about when you wrong others. Brothers and sisters, the rest of chapter 5 is composed of six sections. But notice, if you have a Bible with you, that each of the six sections, verses 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43, all begins with, they all begin with something like, you have heard that it was said such and such, but I say to you. Obviously, Jesus is opposing some people. But the question here is, who is he opposing? Well, many have thought that he was opposing Moses, the law of Moses that we heard this morning. And it's Jesus versus Moses, Jesus against the Old Testament, and gospel against the law. I doubt, however, that's correct, because notice, first of all, that whenever our Lord Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, then he generally uses the standard introductory phrase, it is written, it is written. Think of, the, and think of the temptations of our Lord Jesus. Satan quotes, it is written, and Jesus quotes back, it is written. But here, Jesus says six times, you have heard that it was said. Furthermore, if the Lord Jesus is indeed contradicting the law here and speaking against Moses, is he not contradicting himself? And speaking against the very words that he pronounced just moments ago. For earlier he said, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will disappear until everything is accomplished. Earlier translations, other translations say, not an iota, 
An iota means not even the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Not a dot. That means just that little spot that you use to write one of the, some of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The law is as enduring as the universe, Jesus says. So would it not be rather strange if he says that? And then in the very next word, he, 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 he picks apart that very law. So then we are left with the question, if it's not Moses and the law that he's opposing, who are they then? Well, again, the answer is not as difficult as it may seem. For centuries, you see, the scribes and the Pharisees had been busy teaching and educating young Jews about the law of Moses. Palestine developed its whole system of synagogues already in the time of, of the Babylonian captivity. And in those synagogues, the people would be taught in an oral fashion. It would be mouth. People would word things. The rabbis and leaders would speak, and students would listen. And it was thought not to write all this stuff down because it's too holy to be written down, they initially thought. And so the, the, the students memorized the laws and the worthwhile comments the noteworthy rabbis would make, and so they were able to recite them in, in terms in the same similar terms to others. And this went on for generation after generation, right to the day in which Jesus speaks. And right even today, you'll hear this kind of thing in the, in the Jewish synagogues. And so what Jesus is doing here in a subtle way is speaking about the Pharisees and the scribes, the teaching that is being passed on right to his day. You have heard that it was said. The Lord Jesus is not opposing Moses, He'd be opposing God. He's taking his position over against those who sit on Moses' seat, those who claim to be Orthodox disciples of Moses. As John Calvin already said so well, he said, our Lord Jesus is not a new legislator. He's not a new lawgiver. No, he's the faithful expounder of the law which had already been given. He actually wants to teach people, also the Pharisees, how to read the law of Moses as it was originally meant to be read. For what was it that these Pharisees and scribes taught? Well, Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard, verse 21, you have heard that it was said by the men of old, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now you might say, well, what's wrong with that statement? You shall not murder. Is that not what Moses said? But the problem was that with those few words, uh, that made up the rabbi's full and, and complete interpretation of the Sixth Commandment. They were restricting this commandment to such an extent that it applied only to the deed of murder, only to the act of spilling human blood in homicide. <coughs> they said, if you commit murder, kill someone, then you have broken the Sixth Commandment. And then you can expect judgment and, and punishment from the local court. And so at the same time, they concluded that since they had not murdered anyone, they had not broken this commandment. They, they kept and fulfilled the sixth commandment of the law. See what happens? You get off feeling pretty good about yourself because who among us has committed murder in this literal sense? So we're pretty righteous by that standard, aren't we? But see what our Lord Jesus how he cuts through this. He says in verse 22, 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Do you see how he's working towards that deeper righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? He's really saying, that's what Moses was all talking about. Let me tell you what Moses was talking about. He's including anything that might lead up to the act of murder. He says, if anyone is angry with his brother or sister, he breaks the sixth commandment. <coughs> the way the word is used here in the original suggests that this person is not just angry for a moment, but he, he, he carries anger. He, he nurses this grudge. It's kind of a portable anger, and that can be quite explosive. Jesus mentioned some situations where it does explode. You call out raka, which means you empty head. We might say you nitwit, you blockhead. The second result of this bottled anger is that he tells them uh, you might call out, you fool to someone. I suspect we're guilty of these kind of things, aren't we? But the Lord Jesus is saying there's a form of murder that comes about even though you never take a knife or a gun in your hand. There's a form of murder that happens every day but never gets in the newspapers. So you see what our Lord is doing? He's talking about a new way of living, a way in which the very things mentioned in the Beatitudes become true of a certain body of people. It becomes true of you and me. He's working His own character in us so that we become like Him. Meek. Blessed are the meek. Merciful. Blessed are the are the merciful peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. How do we get to that? Only because He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He offered up all the obedience which we could never offer. And then He shares this deeper righteousness with us. It's not that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in some kind of quantitative sense. Only Jesus does that. But in Jesus, we get His righteousness. And His righteousness is what exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees all the time. All the children of the Father share in this because of that one child of the Father, our dear elder brother. Think of his life. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When they scoffed at him and blinded him and smote him and mocked him and planted a crown of thorns in his head, he could go to the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All his anger was vented, not at personal offenses. His anger throughout the Gospels, study it carefully, his anger is always directed at injustice and at sin. We are quick, very quick to be angry whenever we are offended personally, but we are much too slow to be angry when sin and injustice happens, that's when we should be angry. Be not mistaken, there are terrible people in this world, just as there were terrible people in Jesus' world. But our task is not to show them hatred, 
rather the love of Christ. And sometimes people do terrible things to us. But our task is not revenge, hatred, anger, and the like. No, no. Peace and grace and love and blessing. It applies everywhere. I don't know if at school, boys and girls, they still chant the words, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but names will never hurt me. Jesus disagrees with that. The pain of words can hurt a lot longer than the pain of a stick or a stone. There are many, many people who with deep psychological damage today because a hateful name or a hateful word is lodged in their psyches like a bullet lodged in their spine. Many such people are right here. Jesus' way is the better way. Others have worked it out for, for our Lord Jesus and the rest of Scripture. Paul takes the words of Jesus and expounds them for us. For example, in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, where our Lord Jesus says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That's what happens when you are angry. You give the devil a foothold in your life. He goes on in verse 30 of chapter 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And verse 31 and 32 all the way to 5 verse 2. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And, and, and later on, John, in 1 John 3, verse 15, he, he writes and he says, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. In verse 18, he says there, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. What happens is, we become like our Lord Jesus. If we believe in the Lord Jesus, He will cause us by His Spirit to become like Him, and we will act in this world like many Christs to a world that's hurting and a world that lives in all kinds of hatred and enmity. Our catechism has taken note of all of this and, 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 and puts it in Lord's Day 40 like this. It says, as it expounds the sixth commandment, it says, does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. The catechism is also working towards this deeper righteousness that Jesus is talking about. And it goes on in 107, is it not enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No, when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. But our Lord goes on. Our Lord Jesus is not only talking here about what you should do when others wrong you, he also talks about what you should do when you wrong others, when you may have wronged others. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? You say hurtful things. You do things you might regret, or others might regret that you did them. And you live with these things. Jesus puts it this way in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 5. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Let's transfer this to today's terms. Imagine you are in church and you're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That feast that speaks about how you're united to God and you're united to each other. But as you sit there, you suddenly remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, something he believes you really did wrong. Then Jesus would say, go immediately. Just leave your Bible and your, and your other books here. It doesn't matter. Just go at once and put the matter right. Do not wait till the service has ended. Seek out your brother immediately and ask for his forgiveness. First go and be reconciled to your brother, <coughs> then come again and offer your worship to God. The rabbis actually had a rule which went the other way, a rule which said uh, worship must always be completed first, and then go and reconcile with your brother or your sister, for God is more important than they are. But Jesus says, it's better to let the priest wait at the altar for your sacrifice for sin than to let your brother wait for your confession of sin. It's better to skip the wine and the bread than to let the matter fester. In other words, there's an urgency among the people of God. There's a need for peace. It's far more important that you be reconciled with your brother or sister than that you perform your religious acts. The Pharisees did. They're all about the religious acts. Jesus says, this is more important. This is part of the deeper righteousness. It's far more important that you be cleared of the offense of all men than that you appear this morning at church and sing psalms and hymns. The Lord Jesus changes the imagery somewhat, the scenario. In the second example, there is a law court you're involved in. It seems that you have an unpaid debt. And then he says in verses 25 and 26, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The pictures that are sketched here are, are, are examples, and these two examples are different. The one is taken from the church, the other one's taken from court. The one concerns a brother, the other one concerns possibly a neighbor. But in both cases, the situation is the same. Someone has a grievance against you, 
And in both cases, the lesson is also the same. Jesus says, you need, I need to take immediate, urgent action in the very act of worship. If we remember the grievance, we are to break off our worship right there and then and go and put it right. In the very act of going to court, on our way there, we are to settle our debt. <coughs> Notice as well, it's not that we have a grievance against them, but they have a grievance against us. We need to think about that. Aren't we inclined to say, well, if he has a complaint against me, he knows where I live. He can come and talk to me. Let him come to me. But Jesus says, if you know he has something against you, then you go to him or to her and go quickly. It's a great lesson that we learn here. Jesus is saying that the point of the, of the Ten Commandments is not that when we come to the sixth one, we say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I don't take up knives or guns and shoot people. No, the whole movement of the law, the thing towards which the law is pointing is not simply the act of killing or of assassinating or of murder, but it's rather of all the hatred and all the personal animosity which leads to that kind of acts of murder. Don't we sometimes say things to people that, that effectively say, you know, I wish you were dead. My life would be better if you were dead. It's murder. It's the sixth commandment. John Stott called his book on the Sermon on the Mount, delightful book, he called it Christian Counterculture. Back when I was a teen in the 60s and 70s, they called my generation the counterculture generation. While it was not nearly as radical and as different as what Jesus is defending. It was radical about superficial things like music and the length of people's hair and whatever else. But Jesus is starting something that's truly countercultural in every culture. Jesus is starting a whole new society, really. A church, a kingdom, a people, a culture that is going to be characteristically and radically different, and that difference is going to flow out into society everywhere. It is going to be different because of the king and what the king causes the citizens to be. People who do not hate, but instead they love. People who live without friction in their communities it's very striking how our Lord maintains that in this church, this community, you are not supposed to have anything serious against anyone else, and no one else is supposed to have anything serious against you. Differences of opinion may always be there, but not sins or serious grievances between us. They ought not to be there. It cuts both ways. In, in the famous passage of, of Matthew 8, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And then Jesus goes and your brother has sinned against you and he gives a whole lengthy list of, of things you have to do because you're concerned, not about yourself, but you're concerned about this brother because if he sins against you, he's, he's in this sin and he's gonna, that sin's going to cripple him. The devil's going to get a foothold on him. But your brother sins against you. You have to deal with this and deal with it properly and deal with it swiftly. 
But here, in both of these examples, there's the, there's the possibility that, that you may have wronged other people. It's the other way around. You may be in the wrong. In both these scenarios, you need to take decisive action. In no case is animosity allowed to be built up in the community of God's people. It's to be answered. If you're the brother who has caused offense, you are responsible for setting it right. But if you are the brother or sister who has, who has been offended, you are also responsible for setting it right. These things take priority over all our religious duties. He calls you and me to account this morning. We need to take inventory of our lives. Think about our social lives. Think about it. Are you actually harboring a, a grudge, anger against someone? You need to deal with that quickly, today, now. Is anyone angry with you? Have a serious problem with you? You need to deal with that and deal with it swiftly. This is how people act when they are part of the new movement that comes in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how people act when we, we live out the Beatitudes because we have been blessed by the life and death of our dear Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Him, then the Spirit will come and make you like this and make you want to be like this. It will, he will make you want to, to obey, not just the, 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 the outward form of all these commandments that we have recited this morning, but we will obey them to their depths. He calls us to a better lifestyle, and we can do it. Not because now we are so strong and so mighty and so able, but because we get this new, deeper righteousness in Jesus and from Jesus. He fulfilled it all. We can begin to fulfill it in Him. Then it even happens that the law begins to be fulfilled in us. Again, every other New Testament writer expounds on this in ways that are uh, too much for us to go over this morning. We can't enumerate all these ways, but I just think of this. For the last while I have been, one of the things I've been studying is the relationship between grace and peace. Think about this. It's one of the first things said this morning, grace and peace be to you. Why are these two together all, all the time? Old Testament blessings, New Testament blessings, Paul, John, Peter, grace and peace they seem always to be together. Why? Because the one flows out of the other. Where there is grace, there will be peace. <coughs> Where there is no grace, look at this world. Where there is no grace, there will be no peace. Don't we see that all over? When God displays grace to people, there will be peace. When you experience the grace of God, you will become a peaceful person. The last thing you want is animosity with anybody. The thing you want above all is reconciliation with people just along the ways you have a now have a reconciliation with God. The world may be a mess, but the church is a place of peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, because of the Prince 
of peace, the King of peace, our dearest brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless us all as we think about that and become like that in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, almighty, glorious God, we thank and praise you that you do what no person of him or herself can ever do. You make us live a new life because and when we're in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You come in your grace and you offer us life and you make that life even better than it could possibly be on our own because you give us the peace, the righteousness, the love, the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, most gracious God, that you would bless us by your Spirit so that we might live this way. That if there are hurts that we've inflicted upon others, that we might deal with them today. If there are those who have offended us, that we might deal with these things today. Grant that the peace which comes in Jesus Christ into our hearts may extend to all those around us in the church community, in this world, as we live, as we move, as we have our being. May it all be in Jesus Christ, your Son. In His name alone do we pray. Amen.